Hello, hello, hello. Good hello. This is Aiden Jones, and you're listening to Sitting Under a Tree for Tuesday, the 30th of August, 2020. I hope you're doing good. Are you okay? I, you know, are, are you though? Are you okay? Are you relaxing? Are you feeling, you know, Full of a meal? I'm just asking you questions that I'm... That's how I feel. I feel full. I've had a lovely meal. I'm at uh, my friend's house with her parents in uh, in Yorkshire. Oh, wonderful Yorkshire in England. Oh, oh I didn't test the mic this time. Is it fucking... Oh, God. Well, you know, no, I, I have to test it. I'm sorry. Okay, no, it's all good. It's all good. It's all good in Yorkshire, yes. <laughs> oh, mate, I feel so good. I just feel relaxed. I'm tired. I'm not as tired as I was during the Fringe, but the Fringe is done. It's over. We did it, man. We completed it. We did 20... I did 25... Days. I mean, everyone did 25 days of shows. I ended up, I did 133 shows. Oh, God. My friend's dad made me some Darjeeling tea, and it is just wonderful. It's floral, and it's kind of delicate, and it, oh. Oh, such a joy. Oh. 25 days, 133 times on stage, that's solo shows and spots and other little things. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the last week, mate, the last week of the Fringe was just, I mean, like, I can't, what word can I describe? Like, it wasn't chaos isn't quite the right word, nor is intense, but it was just like, you know, I felt like worn down emotionally. Every day was a new, renewed struggle and like a fight. And then I got through every day and then the next day again. But it wasn't ever, like I didn't ever wish that I wasn't doing it. And I kind of was enjoying the fact that it was a struggle. And, and so I've had some of the best sets ever, that I've ever had as a comic in the last week. Uh, I'll tell you about some of them. I, I had a set, this one may be my favorite one, um, that I've been talking about all week and telling people I've told the story on stage. I, uh, let me see if it was, let me just check that it wasn't fucking, I didn't say it on the last podcast. Where's the fucking socks? Or did I say the socks story? Have I already told you guys the story about the socks? Where are you, you fucking rat? Where's the socks? I mean, you guys, by this point, you know whether I've told the socks story or not, but I can't remember. Here's, where's voice recorder? Pick of the fringe. Aussies. Sock swap. 24th. No. So why can't I find it in my fucking thing? 23rd, 25th. There it is. Yes. You guys don't know the story about the socks yet. So, um... 
Pick of the fringe at Cabaret Voltaire, man. There's something about that room. I guess it's like a kind of expansive space. The space is way bigger than the audience. Even if it's full, the space still feels a lot bigger than the audience. The ceiling's kind of high and they're down in this weird pit and then the stage is up again. But like, I don't know. It's just something about it. I was always trying to do... And also like fucking Kyle Legacy's MCing who doesn't really do jokes that much. So like he's just riffing. And then I've come on in that show a few times and tried to do jokes and... uh yeah, it just often was very flat. And whatever, that's fine. I mean, I was doing enough gigs that that didn't get me down particularly, but it started to annoy me. I was like, when am I going to have a good set in this fucking room? And uh, so there was one set that I was in there and I was bombing. I tried to do jokes and it wasn't working and I just like kind of my shoulders dropped and I went and sat on the speaker and, uh, I just, that's the thing. I was trying to do jokes. Like I was trying to go on and hit them hard with gear and they just, I don't know, man, maybe I was too detached and I was just trying to have the gear be like my sledgehammer, you know, to knock them down. But I wasn't connecting with them at all or whatever the fuck it was that gig, man. I just went and sat on the speaker, picked up some guy's flyer. <laughs> From the speaker and just started being like, the fuck is this? What are you guys reckon about this show? And just started like roasting the flyer. And that wasn't a good set, but that kind of made me go like, you know what? That's what to do. At least I was having fun and I didn't just give up and do the material like a robot and let myself bomb. And then, you know, like it's like fucking just letting someone euthanize you. Uh, just accepting defeat. No, no, no. That's not why we do comedy. So then I think it might have been the next set. Well, anyway, it was Wednesday. Wednesday the 24th. What's that? Yeah, it is Wednesday. Um, I went on and I just knew. I was like, this last week of gigs, man, like I was getting really sick of my jokes, dude. All of my jokes. And I didn't have enough time to write new jokes because I was too busy. And it's just not really the environment to like have new ideas. Like I was working on the show and kind of solving problems in the show. But in terms of just having a new idea, I didn't feel like I really had the space to be doing that mentally. So um, I just had the same jokes that I came to the festival with, more or less. And uh, I was fucking sick of them. Even the new ones, the new ideas or whatever, sick of them. So when uh, the last week rolled around, and that was the thing, man. Like the first week of The Fringe is so intense but you're finding your kind of rhythm. And then the second week is even more intense and you're tired from the first week. And by the time the third week comes around, it's still as intense, but you're tired from the first two weeks and you know it's the final push. And then also the audiences are less because school holidays are finished and there's fewer tourists coming to the city. And it's just the character of the fringe changes for that last week. Dude, I saw a fucking article in the Guardian today that my mate sent me that was what was the fuck what's the um there we go. What the fucking headline of this article? Edinburgh Fringe is too long, too expensive, and too grueling. It must change or die. I mean, first of all, this whole change or die it must change. It's like it mustn't. It doesn't have to change and it's not going to die. It might just be something that you don't want to go to anymore. But if enough people stop going, then there'll be a point where there's more audience than shows and then people start going. Like I just, this fucking catastrophizing that people do where they're like, it's time for a change. It's like, 
Is it? Or maybe you need to fucking adapt and change. Maybe you're not getting what you want out of this amazing thing. And maybe that's something that you got to figure out what you want to get out of it or make it work for you, you know? No one else. Stop fucking telling people, like, we, we need to change this because I'm not happy with it. It's like, well, fuck you. <laughs> We're not, I don't have to change shit if I don't want to. And if I do want to, I'll change it. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a perfectly legitimate thing to just write an article. It is perfectly legitimate. There's nothing wrong with writing an article. But this... Fucking article, man. The main thing that I took... So, like... Buh, 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 buh. All right, here's his opening paragraph. With litter strewn across the streets, the heavens opening, and drawn faces on every comic who didn't make the awards shortlists, there's a, there's a post-apocalyptic feel to the end of this year's Edinburgh Fringe. Is it just the bin strike and the undeniable fact that the festival is far too long? Quote, the only thing that should last a month, end quote, as comic Sarah Keyworth joked, quote, is a month. The only thing that should last a month is a month. I mean, that's funny. And Sarah's very funny. Or is there more to it? A sense, long brewing, ever harder to ignore, that the Fringe Festival model is broken. Ultimately, as the comedy producer Owen Donovan tweeted, it comes down to a lot of people having a shit time, both those on and off stage. Here we go, though, right? And then he starts talking about, like, the way that... I mean, do I want to fucking... He talks about the way that heaps of people... You know, the fringe is so great, but then his enthusiasm has been increasingly smothered by caveats that the fringe is too absurdly expensive for artists to a degree that excludes many, that it's insufficiently diverse, that it can be overwhelming, grueling, and lonely for many people taking part. Conversations felt louder than ever, blah, 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 blah. But he starts talking about diversity and particularly diversity in, um, in like class at the fringe, you know, and going like it's not diverse enough and people that don't have the money are being squeezed out or whatever, so you should make it shorter. But it's like, you're this. F the thing that annoys me so much about the fringe is that all of the discourse, just like in the rest of the world, is led by the people with the microphone, like as in the people who have all the money to begin with. Like if you're doing the Pleasant's Gilded Balloon Assembly and um, Underbelly, you know, and, and you're complaining that the fringe is too long. Well, yeah, it probably is if you're doing that because you're spending heaps of money and you're not making a lot of money and it's a more and more crowded marketplace and so the rewards are less and less there for you. But that doesn't mean the fringe is broken. That means the way you're doing the fringe is broken. And if you made the fringe shorter, people like me and all of the fucking people <laughs> that I do the fringe with would lose out because we're on the free fringe and I'm not there to spend a bunch of money in a high production show and get audience or get media to come to it. I'm there to get fucking people to come to my show and donate money afterwards. And I'm there to make the show better. And both of those would not be possible if the fringe was shorter. Oh, I'm so fucking sick. Of that, that discourse, of that some fucking loser going, the fringe is to this, the fringe is to that. It's like, yeah, for you, for the way you're doing it, maybe you're doing it wrong. Maybe there's other ways to do it, but you refuse to believe that. So instead, you just get in a fucking newspaper and say that the whole thing's fucked. It's not fucked. You're fucked. Shut up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well, well. <laughs> mm. 
Oh, fucking that felt good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Everyone all right? We all... We all settled down there. God damn it. I mean, oh, yeah, I agree with everything I just said, but God, that was a fucking rant, wasn't it? I felt myself doing it halfway through. I was like, Aiden, you're really going off on one here, but like, I just kind of decided to go with it. No, oh, the fringe was good. What was I talking about? I was talking about the fucking sets at Cabaret Voltaire. That's it. This is my argument for why the Fringe should be as long as it is. It's because if you're trying to get something artistically out of the Fringe, rather than trying to use it as a fucking career development trades festival, then it necessarily needs to be long, and it needs to be grueling, and it needs to be hard, because that's when you fucking wear yourself down to the point where, like, if it was a week long... I would just do it and it'd be easy. And then I wouldn't learn anything. Because you don't learn anything when comedy's fucking easy. Like the whole... Some of these fucking sets that I'm going to talk about in a second, I had them because I was so tired and so just annoyed by the idea of getting up on stage again and doing my jokes that I could never, I could never get to that point. Like I do the Melbourne Comedy Festival every year. It lasts for a month, and there's no way to do as many sets as I can in Edinburgh. And I just don't get to that point. Or everything's too high stakes, you know, because of what I'm trying to use Melbourne for, or because everyone's paid beforehand, or just the nature of the festival. It's not the same. There's nothing else that exists in comedy, to the best of my knowledge, that is like the Edinburgh Fringe and. Um, it just like, I mean, yeah, if you're using it to fucking, if you're using it for like a career development opportunity to like show your wares, you know, like throw your hat in this ring, it's a completely legitimate way to use it. But then like, if you're pinning all your hopes on that, don't be surprised if at the end of it, when you're tired and exhausted and you didn't even get anything out of it artistically, you're a bit annoyed because you pinned your hopes on something that's contingent on like external shit. This guy, you know, are artists even getting enough out of it anymore? It's like, well, if something that they want to get out of it is based on other people's approval, then yeah, you probably are fucking pinning your hopes on something that's not going to happen. I'm sorry. I've got to stop ranting. I want to try and focus on these stories. So, and I don't want to be a downer because I've had the best month and I'm feeling great. But evidently, I'm still a bit emotional, which is why I've been screaming. <laughs> um, so I went on at Cab Vol with no plan. I decided I'm not doing my jokes. And the thing about me, like, when I first started doing comedy, you know, you got nothing. You have no jokes. You don't know what's funny. So you just go on and it's terrifying. And then for me, I think I, I, I like to take risks, I guess, but I need a plan for a risk. I don't like to take risks without having planned, you know, because then I can ready myself for the, the idea that it might, I might fail and it'll hurt. So like I tend in my comedy more towards like, let me write, let me find things that work and then write them as jokes and stories. And then that's my material and that's my safety net. So when I go up, at least I have something that's under my control because there are so many uncontrolled variables like the crowd and the room and the night and the audience 
like the energy and everything and who went before me and whatever that I can't control. So at least if I have my, my material, that's something that I can control and that feels safe and it's like a safety net. So that's kind of how I've developed as a performer, but I got sick of that. And I also sometimes kind of resent it because it's like, I know sometimes being, having the material there, it's like something to hide behind. And then it's something that's in between me and the audience and the audience is what I'm, I'm trying to connect with the audience and entertain them. And you can't do that. Like part of the reason why I loved comedy initially that I think it has over music, for example, as great as music is, you can practice music at home. And then when you go on stage, you can play it like you would play it at home. And then you're not really there with those people or you are, but to a lesser extent than if you were actually just talking to them and having a conversation that feels like the, the instrument is something to hide behind. And when you start doing comedy, you have this instrument that you don't know how to play. So you're completely exposed. But the more you learn how to play, how to write jokes, how to develop stories and have material and, and have an act you've created an instrument for yourself and you put it back in between you and the audience. <clears throat> and that's kind of where I'm at now is like, I feel like I can write jokes. I can write stories. I can put a show together and I've got this thing that I keep building in between me and the audience and distancing myself from them. And I'm trying to figure out how to take that away or see through it a bit more to find that connection again, but in a more controlled way rather than the complete chaos that I was bringing to the stage when I first started. So I decided at a bunch of sets this week in places where I knew it didn't matter if I went really terribly because friends were running the shows or whatever. I'm going to start going with no material. And I noticed if I start going with no material, but then go in my head, I'm like, well, I'll do a little bit of no material. I'll just riff. But then later in the set, I'll go back to a joke. <clears throat> I've noticed because I just, I want that safety I run back to the jokes and the, and the fucking safety quicker than what I would like. And I always have this lingering thought that if I just stayed in that moment of not knowing, it feels bad. And there's, there's like these anxieties of like, I'm wasting everyone's time. They're bored. They hate me. You know, when I'm going with no material and I see them not laughing and I don't know where the next laugh is going to come from, all of those anxieties come in. And I go back to the material, but I always have this lingering thought that if I stayed in that moment and felt those feelings and just let, if they hate me, sure, just let them hate me. Let them be bored. Let them, whatever, whatever it is, let them do that and let me feel what that feels like. If I, I always think if I just stayed in that moment, then I would have found something funnier than the thing that I planned to say beforehand. So I went on and, uh, I had no... I was like, I'm not doing a single bit of material. Not one, not once. I'm not doing it. 10 minutes. And I fucking started riffing about people's socks. There was a guy with cool socks. They were bright. I was making jokes about that. I Whatever. He said a weird thing. And I was talking about that. And then I was asking other people about their socks and then other questions. And it started to go nowhere. But then there was another lady and she was like, I've got some socks for you. And she gave me her socks and said, read out what's on them. And it said, be kind or shut up. And it got a big laugh from the crowd because I guess I was in a way kind of not being kind because that's my, like, I don't know, my go-to if I want to get a laugh is to just call someone an idiot or a loser or whatever. I think that's funny. And, uh, yeah, then she said that to me and it was kind of like a heckle. She heckled me with her socks. And then I think I was like, are these, are you giving these to me? She was like, yeah, absolutely. They're yours. And so 
she came up and we swapped socks and I was excited about that. But then I started to find this thing of like, and I was talking to someone, a friend who's an actor about how they like find their type. They like in their acting classes, everyone kind of looks at you and your face and the way that you are and your mannerisms and they find other actors that they think are reminiscent of you so that you kind of have an idea about the way that you are perceived because that's really helpful when you're going for parts. And it's such an important thing, isn't it, as an artist or as someone who's like trying to, you know, perform in front of people to know what people think and feel when they first look at you or when they first hear you speak or when they first see you take the stage. And I think that's something I've avoided. I don't, I don't know. I don't really know that I know that much about myself. But something that I'm learning or I think encountering a lot is that I notice I have a few friends who are really good friends who I like a very dear friends to me, you know, <clears throat> and uh, more and more like I kind of I think about all of my close friends. And one thing that a lot of them have in common is that they love making fun of me and they have this way of being around me where they like roll their eyes and they're like, oh, fucking this cunt. And that's like the kind of funny banter or whatever it is that we have. And like, sometimes it like hurts, you know, because it's like, am I really annoying? <laughs> this is some, I, I've, I really feel like I'm, uh, I don't know. This I've, I'm scared that this is boring because this is like my fucking deep insecurities. Um, but a lot of my friends share that thing where I tell them stories and they're like, oh my God, what the fuck is wrong with you? And, uh, I, th I think that there must be something to that, you know, there must be something about me that elicits that response from people who know me and love me and care about me that still, they, they feel all those things, but they still manage to kind of witness me and the things that I do and roll their eyes and go, you are an idiot and I hate you. <laughs> like, it's like I'm fun to hate somehow. And uh, so when I was on stage and that lady made fun of me for, the, they said that my socks were shit. Uh, someone else said my socks were shit. And then like, she came on stage and we were swapping and she was like, are these clean? And I was like, I'm in a shower this morning. And she was like, well, fucking, uh, yeah, she was like, did you? Oh, okay. And I was like, do I seem like someone who didn't done shower? And everyone in the room together went, yes. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's funny, you know? I feel like I'm being bullied by the audience there. Um, and it did kind of hurt. Oh, that's right. At another point, someone said, that's right. Before that, I'd said to someone else, she was like, what socks have you got? And I was like, I got these. And then I was like, what socks have you got? And they were like something, whatever. And I was like, oh, they're sick. You know, whatever I made it, maybe I made fun of her. And she was like, at least I've got a personality. She said that to me. And I was like, I mean, it did kind of hurt. I was like, oh, I don't even know what that means. But like, that sounds hurtful. But I guess I was just playing with the, the, the feeling and the idea of like letting the crowd make fun of me and letting that be like fun for them and engaging for them, you know? And I mean, it seemed to really work. And I was talking about how my friends all, you know, the thing that they have in common is that everyone makes fun of me. And they were like, no. And I was like, no, not like that. But like, 
Yeah, it really felt like a cool thing. And, and uh, I don't know where I want to go with this, but I mean, the set was the best set I've had. She took photo, She took a photo of me wearing the socks and standing on the speaker and that got a big round of applause and then I ended the set there. I got it on camera. I'm going to chuck it up on YouTube. Maybe this week. We'll see. Um, I did a few other sets like that on fucking on Saturday night at the late show Shaggers at like 10.45. I went on stage. I was so tired and I just got on stage and laid down on my back <laughs> and did like five minutes just lying on my back looking up at the roof and I did not do well. <laughs> but that was fun. Oh, I did another set where I was like riffing with this girl who was like being real sassy with me. And then I was just like, you're really hot. Can I get your number? And then her friends were like, she's single. And I like got this girl's number who was in the audience. We messaged a bit. We didn't find time to meet up. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but like, that was really cool and exciting. I mean, that was a, just a real thing that I felt. I was like, and I don't think I'd be able to do that in my life. I, I, I normally when, um, people like, I don't know, I'm just not good at flirting with girls. And then that, in that moment, because I was on stage, I just had to say something and I was like, you know what, this, that came out of the pressure, you know? And that, I mean, that killed when she gave me her number. Oh my God. People were like, Aah! can I, can I remember any others? Oh, there was another one that I didn't do. So I was doing some. That's right. I was asking people how long they'd been in a relationship for, but with like the like uh, the like horse racing announcer, I was like, or like an auctioneer, like, and we've got three years over here. You've been dating for three years. Can anybody three years over here? And we've got six. We have six years. And I just did that for a while. That was another set. That was really fun. A bunch of these sets. I was so fucking tired, and uh, it was just yeah, man. That's that, that for me is enough. Even if it comes to nothing, even if the idea of the audience making fun of me, even if I can't turn that into something that I do on stage or figure out how to manufacture that, the fact of having had those moments and felt how free that was to do that kind of stuff on stage and to not have a plan, that is worth losing all the fucking money that I have in the world, you know? I would go to Edinburgh and make no money and come home broke if I could still have that experience. So, yeah. I don't know. Some fucking loser on The Guardian going about how we need to change the festival or the festival's broken or whatever. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's not perfect. Of course it's not perfect. There's plenty of problems with the festival. But... It almost feels like that's coming from such a middle-class perspective. What's that? Oh, I don't know. Whatever. Like, the people who... How can I try and explain this? The comics who do those... There's a working class of comedian. There's a, a bunch of comedians who, for whatever reason, and maybe it's talent or application or... Maybe it is some sort of bias, whatever. But there is a class of comedian who never get like any... They're not even in the conversation to be on the awards. And maybe they don't deserve to be, you know? But like, I mean, there are working class comics. There are. 
there are comics who are just, they just work year round. They play clubs, you know, they do the job. They do the job. That's a job. You know, people who work on cruise ships, all that stuff. And uh, for whatever reason, they don't engage with the artistic side as much as it's just like a job for them. And you see them do it. But they use Edinburgh. <laughs> That's a part of their working year. And they're not using it to try and get a deal on the BBC or get seen for Live at the Apollo or any of that stuff. Um, and it feels like the article in The Guardian that's talking about how we need more representation and more diversity of voices on the fringe and that the fringe is all fucked and that it's too long is completely ignoring the fact that you have all of those diversity of voices. You have people who work these places that are working class comics playing to working class audiences year round. They exist. They're there. They're on the fringe. And your idea to make the fringe shorter, like it completely fucks with their livelihood. They're right there in front of you, mate. Go find them. Go talk to them. But you won't because you just want to sit in the fucking Pleasance Bar and talk about how good whatever the new hot comic du jour is. You know? I don't know. Why have that? Why have I let that upset me? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I'm not even that upset by it. It's great that people are writing about the fringe. It really is. It's good. It's important. Well, it's not important. <laughs> Who cares? But like, I like that people are writing about the fringe and I think it's cool. I don't, I don't think that guy's a dickhead. I just disagree with his article. That's all. That is all. What am I going to do for the poster this week, eh? What's a good fucking... Oh, the bins, of course, man. The fucking bin sitch in Edinburgh was out of control. <laughs> Just crazy. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I've got a nice picture here from across Southbridge of uh, two buildings going up on either side of the the picture and then blue sky in the middle. And if you look down at the ground, there's rubbish. Do I want that? No, I want one that's even more blatantly rubbish. I'll use this one. It's just a picture of a bunch of bins surrounded by garbage. Because if, if, if I haven't mentioned it, the bin men are on strike in Edinburgh because they took a pay cut during the pandemic and their pay has not been reinstated to the previous levels and now there's inflation and they're fucked. So they've gone on strike for, strategically, the last week of the Edinburgh Fringe. <laughs> Which is genius. Because what's the city going to do, you know? Like, it's the busiest month of the year and they're doing the last week of it when everyone's throwing stuff out and then having it hang over into the week after the fringe. So, like, this week, all the bins were, like, the stuff was building up and then today I left. Like, I left Edinburgh today on Tuesday morning. By the way, sorry the podcast is late. Whatever. Um, especially if you're in Australia. I know it's, like, Wednesday now. Um, so, I, yeah, I left... And, uh, I was acutely aware of the fact that I'm leaving and I get to leave, but everyone else has to stay and all of the rubbish from the fringe and all the venues being packed up and the posters and the flyers and everything being chucked out is just going to be in Edinburgh and the bins aren't being collected till I think the strike is supposed to end on Wednesday, the 31st, but they haven't reached an agreement on the pay. So it might just keep going. So like... Oh, man, I can't imagine what that city's going to be like if they have, like, another week of bin strikes. Crazy. Anyway, so that'll be the photo for this week. And um, maybe the... Uh, maybe, maybe... 
the title will be, I don't hate him, I just disagree with his article. Yeah, I think that's nice. Because, I mean, sure. Maybe the fringe is too long. I mean, just go for two weeks. Go for a week. You don't have to go for the month. You literally don't have to. But I want to go for the month. I fucking loved it, man. The last night, tell you what we did. Um, <clears throat> I had heaps of shows, heaps of sets, and I uh, woke up in the morning. I went to the cafe. I did some writing to still work on the show, use the last show as an opportunity. I think I figured out what I want my new show to be, by the way. It's called The Morning After. Here's the first sentence of the show. On the 21st of June, 2019, I woke up in Bangkok with a hangover and an idea. What if I never drank again? That's the start of the show. I like it. I've been thinking about, um, I watched Stuart Lee's, uh, the, the fucking clip from Comedy Vehicle where he's like having a go at the audience and pretending to have a breakdown just to get them to listen and then tell a joke that they laugh at before the punchline because they're paying attention and then he gets angry at them for being like is that what it takes do I need to have a breakdown and you have to think that I'm suicidal just to get you to listen to an idea the way that you should be when I come in right at the start of the performance and it's amazing the way that he kind of has the jokes but then the show isn't the jokes it's what he does around the jokes to make sure the audience is listening and make each night unique and uh, man like, I just, there's something to the idea that like, I mean, I, I'm sure I could make better things, but I don't know. I think that the next level of my performance is like not jokes, not making better jokes. Like I've got, I think I've had plenty of jokes that are good jokes, you know, that I'm like, I would still be happy to do those and they're great and whatever. But like, it's not my jokes that's holding me back. I think it's, the way that I perform them and especially in an hour show, I think I sometimes hide behind the jokes because I know I've got some good bits of material and so rather than using them to connect with the audience, I hide behind them because I'm scared of the audience's judgment or something like that. And so I'd like to figure out a way to get me engaged and in the room and get the audience engaged in there with me. And I've started to think that maybe a way to do that would be to somehow manufacture a dynamic where the audience is like bullying me and making fun of me and ridiculing me, even though they're not, you know, like the way that Stuart Lee acts like they're against each other or something like that. Or the way that Bill Burr brings himself back into the moment by saying stuff to like fuck himself up to make sure that he's right there. I got there's something about that that I think I hide behind the material and I got to figure out a way. Anyway, that's not what I was going to talk about. The last night, so I was writing the writing the jokes for the show, writing new jokes for it, whatever, trying to do some stuff, use the last performance, did that, did all of my spots, had a nice sit down, had a really nice conversation with a friend, a heart to heart about the fringe and and um did my last show to a smaller audience. I had a lovely guy called Paul who came. Shout out to Paul. You, if you're listening, mate, thank you for coming and bringing all your friends to my last uh, solo show who saw me. He saw me in 2017 do my first ever run during the first run at the Edinburgh Fringe, like my first full run with a solo show. And he saw my show, The Abisham Flat, about the guy I lived with who was a con man. And he had he got my book, the little novella that I wrote. And... Um, 
that I based the show on that I was selling at the end of the show. He got that and he still has it. And he, he came back and came to my, came to taco and brought a bunch of friends and it was so sick. Um, so, uh, did that show, did shaggers, didn't lie down on the floor because the guy running the show, Nick Coppin, was angry at me for doing that. And so I fucking did the last. I was like, I want to stand up. I want to do comedy. I was a professional. And then the last set that I did, oh, I did Roast Battle. Me and Kyle Legacy did Roast Battle. I fucking bombed. I had no jokes prepared. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just went on and did bad jokes and made up whatever jokes on the spot and then pretended that I was killing. <laughs> Like I was just like, Kyle Legacy's wearing shorts, short like his dick. Yes. Woo. Take that. <laughs> I'm like, do the fucking, do the headshot sound. Headshot. Like, you know, just fucking being an asshole. Um, and then I did the last show. I did uh, comedy striptease and I'd found, I, I did the show. I did pick of the fringe before my solo and uh, I had found, for some reason, I'll, I'll read some of them out now. I found this page on Facebook. It's called Kids Write Jokes. And I guess it's just a bunch of jokes written by kids that people send in. And then it puts them on this page. And when I did it at Pick of the Fringe, I was bored of my own jokes. So I said, I'm just going to read some of these jokes out and then we'll workshop them. And I put some of my own jokes in there as well. And we kind of, what do you reckon was better? Whatever. But for striptease, I was like... The the way striptease works as a show, it's at 12.30, they have a bunch of comedians come on, do material, do their sets or whatever, and then they come back on at the end and the audience votes for whoever they thought was the best and the two worst, like with the least amount of applause, everyone else goes off stage and those two have to strip, do a striptease to music. And they get someone on from the audience for you to, they sit in the chair and you dance on them and it's whatever. So... I was doing that and I did it in the middle of the run and Legacy, I fucking killed. I know I killed. I'm not going to let the fucking insecurity crew. I had a great set and uh, Legacy just rigged the audience applause so that I had to strip. Um, and so this one, I was like, well, he's going to make me strip anyway, so I'm going to have to strip. So at least I might as well do it on my terms. So I said to the audience every time, I told them that and then I said, and every time... I do a joke that bombs, I'm going to take an article of clothing off, but I'm sick of my own jokes. So instead I'm going to do these kids write jokes, jokes from this page. Uh, and so some of them just, bom I mean, a lot of them just bombed anyway. Here's some of them. Why did the man stand in the toilet? Because he was a poo. Pretty good. How do you say hello in French? Poo. <laughs> What about, I'll go down to the ones I haven't seen. Knock, knock. Who's there? A ladybug. A ladybug who? A ladybug. I just said that. Ha, 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 This one. Oh, my God. This is so funny. Where does Santa live? In the bin. <laughs> and then at the bottom of that post, it's got one of those COVID-19 info tags that's like, if you want the real information. <laughs> What's brown and sticky? A poo. Funny. Why did my mum poo on the sofa? Because she drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> I mean, that just sounds like a sad story, doesn't it? Uh, what does penguins wear on the beach? <laughs> Pangflopes. <laughs> that doesn't even mean anything. 
Oh my god, yes. What is blue and falls from the sky? A drunk snail. Okay. Uh I'll do I'll do three more. Uh a door walks into a library and asks, Can I have a doorknob, please? Librarian whispers, This is a library. Door whispers back, Oh sorry, can I have a pint of bananas, please? That doesn't make any sense. What about this one? Two more to go. Why did the cow go to the cinema to watch a film? Great. Oh, this is pretty funny. Why do pterodactyls fly to the toilet? Because their wee is complicated. <laughs> that's funny. I like that. Um, look. So that's what I did. And I evident I had to fucking strip a bunch. I had to get naked. Um, and I did my set and I did well and I did my story at the end, the story about the, the, you know, the wings, the fairy wings. If you haven't listened to that from a couple of weeks ago, go listen to that. And that was my last gig of the fringe. And then I came back on and I had to strip. <laughs> I put my clothes back on and then I went back on stage and I had to strip again. Humiliating. Um, but then some friends came out and everyone was there and, you know, I had a photo with a bunch of Australian comedians and, uh, hung out with uh, my man Ben who was filming the doco and then the pear tree closed at like three and we went to Dropkick Murphy's and we had more drinks and well, I'm not gonna I'm not ashamed to say that we did a little bit of cocaine in the toilets of Dropkick Murphy's and then someone who was working there saw us walk into the toilets and they kicked us out and that was the night that was the last night of the fringe um the last couple of days I've spent just relaxing you know, I watched one more show. I watched Elf Lions' amazing show last night. It was absolutely incredible. I uh, I watched the movie The Pianist, Pianist last night, which was one of the saddest movies I've ever seen. It was amazing, but it was so sad. It really put in perspective the fact that COVID, while it was unprecedented, was nothing like the Second World War and the Holocaust. As, you know, I mean, as far as historical events go, sure, maybe it changed a bunch of stuff, but they're on a completely different fucking scale, aren't they? Um, yeah, it's been great, man. I'm feeling good. The, the month was everything that I wanted it to be and everything I hoped it would be. And I feel so lucky and grateful to have come back uh, to my favorite place in the world, you know, to do my favorite thing with a bunch of people who I love and, um, and yeah, that's all I think. So thank you guys very much for listening. I'll catch you next time. This has been Aiden Jones sitting under a tree. Peace. <laughs>